Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. Today's moment comes from the Fugue, number five in D major, from the Well-Tempered Clavier, book two, BWV 874. How would you describe fugue, Alex, in a single short sentence? Like talking to a non-musician about sure. it? Hmm. I would say it's a piece of music that's built on a simple tune, but it gets layered on top of itself. Or maybe I would say it's like a round, like row, row, row your boat, except when the new melody comes in, it's in a different key. Although that might not make as much sense to non-musicians. Overlapping melodies. That's a two-word way of putting it. That's oversimplified. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because sometimes the, it isn't the melody. Right. I think a good place to start is the word root, fugue, which comes from a Latin root, which means like to run away or flee. Hmm. That means that the name fugue is given to this kind of music that has that flighty quality. But what we mean when we call a piece of music a fugue is generally a piece of music built on a single motive and starting with that motive either completely alone or lightly accompanied after which a set number of other voices or instruments enter with that same motive that same short melody usually in a formulaic way in terms of which pitch they start on and how they blend with the other parts it's very loose the definition fugue it doesn't necessarily imply a structure of a piece of music and generally when we hear a fugue, we, we hear how it begins that way. But is there like a beginning, middle, end of a fugue? And the answer is sometimes there's a sort of a clear beginning and middle end, but often there's just not. And the lines are blurred. Some music theorists think that when all of the voices have entered and finished their statement of that motive, that's the end of the first section. That doesn't always hold up in every case. But there are certain techniques that are used in the fugue that Bach is famous for that help you identify such a piece of music. One of those will be the moment to focus on for today. So let's start with our prelude. In the two books of the Well-Tempered Clavier, Bach organizes a prelude and a fugue. They're each a pair in one key. In every key, major and minor, he does this. So we're in book two, and we're now on the fourth set of prelude and fugue, because we've already done C. We started on C major, then we have a prelude and fugue in C major, and then a prelude and fugue in C minor. And then it goes on to C-sharp and so on. And now we're on D. So first we hear a prelude, which is completely different in character. This one's rather jaunty. That helps us get set up for the fugue. Now let's listen to the beginning, the exposition, we sometimes call it. And we'll stop after all four parts have entered because this is a four-voice fugue. In the Kent Kennan Counterpoint textbook, the author writes, There is sometimes a tendency to regard the fugue as cold and abstract, 
but it is capable of conveying a wide variety of moods. And I don't think that's evident more anywhere else than the Well-Tempered Clavier, where we have all the different keys, all the different types of fugues. There's so much variety within them. There are slow ones, fast ones, different number of voices, different voices entering each time, different compositional techniques used to transform the melody in interesting ways. So they're not really a structure, they're more just a way of writing, as this author puts it. Now, Alex, pretend that you've never heard the prelude and you're only hearing the subject entry for the first time. How did it strike you? Like, you, let's say you don't have the musical score in front of you. You're hearing the first, like, five notes. Like, rhythmically? What key do you think you're in? Oh, yeah. Well, it sounds like G. Yeah. Like, it sounds like it's laying out a major triad of whatever key I'm in. It's only a few notes later that we get back down to D. So we hear a subject, it's five notes long. Arguably that's the main motive, but then a second half of it happens. Which is an important part for Bach. Yeah. Well, is it? I think so, because it's it sounds like an answer to the first thing. Like it's it's the same amount of notes. Yeah, but it almost never happens. That uh, well, last note. Yeah, but it gets well, sometimes it gets moved up instead of down. I think it usually is there in some way. But it, I like your observation about the fact that it sounds like it's in a different key at the beginning because part of the way fugues work is that the second and fourth statement, the second and fourth ones, where we call them answers, right? It's an answer. Yeah, a subject and then an answer, and then a subject and then an answer because of what pitch they start on. Right, so the answers usually take us to the dominant key, but because the subjects started in what felt like the four key, which is G, it makes the answers feel like they're starting in D, which is the right key, if that makes sense. So the whole thing feels a little like it's, it really feels like the fugue is in G, except it doesn't because of those pesky G sharps in the answer, in the harmony under the answer. Those are what's keying us in, so to speak, to the fact that this is actually D major. Mm -hmm. You'd think that this would be, like the subject should go, should be A, 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 D, F sharp, and then it'll go on. And then we'd have like maybe an answer start on E. Right, but the reason, happens. the reason it doesn't is because Bach knows if you lay out a fugue subject that feels that's two bars long, the first bar feels like the tonic, the second bar feels like the dominant, that's a recipe for disaster. Because now your answer, which is supposed to completely feel like the dominant, it's not going to work because we already felt that in the second bar of the subject. Yeah, he's, one, he's one step ahead of us yeah. here because he's he's starting us from the other other side. I don't know if this is a particularly useful way to think of it, for everyone, but I love thinking of it this way. I think of like the circle of fifths as like a dial 
and you start in in your key that's right in the in the center and when you move where classical composers usually do up one in the sharp direction like going up to the dominant for a while and now we have the g sharps where we're one step we're one notch higher in the sharp direction mm -hmm. one notch brighter brighter and that always falls back down and points naturally back to normal so that has to go back but then the other direction is also possible and that's the flatter direction arguably the darker area to go in right and that's the four chord that's what's closest that doesn't point back to one to home it doesn't point directly to home usually or not as strongly it usually circuits back from another route usually via five so it's like a dial flicking and then finally stopping in the middle but what Bach has done here is started that dial over on the flat side so that it could spring over to the sharp side really quick and then go back to the middle there's like a harmonic momentum there's like harmonic potential energy to get back and kind of figure out where home is even and the very first second we don't even know where we are yet unless we've heard I guess unless we've heard the prelude then I guess there's an overall sense of D major as where we will end up, which is nice. But if it weren't for that, we'd, we'd be in G. We would think we were in G. And rhythmically, there's a similar effect happening where you're unmoored for a second before you find your bearings. At the beginning of this, ba, 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 the first three notes, it could just be a triplet. And we had a triplet feel earlier in the prelude. Mm -hmm. But then once you hear the next two notes, the quarter notes, bum, bum, then you're like, oh, wait, something's different about that so like i guess that first note wasn't on the beat it must have been a pickup so it was like one bum 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 one bum 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 so there isn't anything on the downbeat you know what famous piece of classical music shares this same ambiguity <laughs> for the very first moment i mean there is a very famous classical piece that starts with rest bum 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 ba is that yeah, what you're thinking of yeah and also since the first two are fermatas since the first two phrases you know, the rhythm doesn't pick up until after that. You don't really know what it is, rhythmically. And the same is true here. So we have a subject that starts us a little bit flatly in G and pushes us back towards the other direction over to A as the answer enters. And we're back and forth a little bit until we finally get to a cadence, which doesn't happen for a while, really. And then, Alex, you were going to say that you thought I was going to talk about the second half of the subject and sometimes how it continues on and overlaps with other entries of the second half of the subject because it's broken into two. When a full entry occurs, we have those three repeated notes, which are so almost iconic and more famous in the Beethoven than here, but very easy to hear anytime they enter. But it's good enough for Bach to just utilize the second half of that subject for almost the entire fugue. It happens way more than the first. The fugue is almost made entirely of that second motif. That's true. He will start that second motif. He'll start it over in every voice sometimes. Yeah, and it's just stacked and layered on top of itself over and over again, like measure 16. Measure 37, 8, 9. Stretches of a few bars will go by without anything but that. And what's so great is that he saves the primary 
subject motif as the fugue develops he saves it for more interesting moments and one of those measure 27 and 28 is three overlapping entries of the subject it's actually the answer because they're they start on a isn't it mm -hmm. but they all start on the same pitch which is unusual for even this kind of thing and this is called stretto we've talked about it before Counterpoint stretto is when several voices enter in an overlapping way like this. And this is as close as they could overlap, just one beat. But this is different than a lot of the others, because in a lot of the others, Bach employed the subject and the answer in stretto. Yeah. Different subjects and answers together. Here, it's all the same. They're all three answers. Actually, only the first and second ones are are complete. Oh yeah, that's true. And then it's like the middle the one. The middle is, one is fragmented. Yeah, we call this a false entry in music theory terminology. It's just those four notes. That's a sneaky way for Bach to get that in there without having to have the burden of making its musical line harmonize with everything yeah. else afterwards. And that's they're so quick one right after the other that. Your brain can almost not process it. So if it was like one, then it would be parsable. But as it is, it's like, it's it's completely layered. They stumble over each other. And yeah. the only way it works is because Bach made that a triadic harmony there. But otherwise it wouldn't even work to put them so close to each other. So the way he constructed this subject in the first place allows him to layer it so close as to almost be touching the other one immediately. Yeah, he absolutely must have written it in the first place knowing that it could be done like this. Both one beat apart and two beats apart, as we'll see. This is like one of the tightest weaves that we've seen of, of themes being woven together. They're so tightly woven together because they're so close. Yeah, and if you if you include the second half of the motive, you're accounting for almost every note in the fugue. If you stretch that loosely, so that even descending lines off of the tail end of that second half of that motive also count loosely, then you've got almost everything covered. And there's yeah. no like free material that needed to be written. Almost every note is part of that motive. In the very first answer we get, the bum 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 bum, ba -da 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 -da. we get a little repetition right at the end there. And of course, later Bach does he spins out those repetitions more in the middle. So everything is constructed off of just that. Yeah, and if you overlap those by one beat, like we had at 16, that works too. And that's just an old counterpoint composing by interval thing that people hundreds of years before Bach had already figured out how to work those thirds and sixths and octaves and everything to work just right so that a repeated pattern could be used, which you can then only repeat a little because you can't do it too much it would be ridiculous but it's a good way to get from one area to another for just a second yeah one of my favorite versions of this is measure 33 when the bum, 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 subject first part of the subject is happening in the top three voices layered again really closely this time it's in instead of just all being a's or whatever or being a fifth apart it's D's, B's, and then G's laying out a really interesting feeling of what really ends up feeling like E minor because of the context of the bass. And then in the next measure, in measure 34, that's when we have da 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 
all these things happening, but it's three in a row, so it's da 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 And those are just the second half of each motive. Yeah, while well, the bass is now just doing these little descending lines. Those descending lines, you could argue, are just like a bit of the, the second motive. But then Bach takes it to the logical extreme by having, as the other voices go up, by having the bass voice just go down in this wonderful long scale, this D major scale that's two octaves long all the way down the keyboard. That almost kind of feels like the theoretical end of the imaginary motive that doesn't happen yeah. in its entirety at the beginning. Like, if it were allowed to keep going, it would go all the way, all the way down to there. You can feel that he's holding back at the beginning, waiting to get to this moment. And it's a cool arrival moment. And it kicks off the, basically, what's the recap of, of the rest of the fugue? Because right after that, the tenor voice gets its entrance again with the same pitches. On the D, 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 G, B thing. Yeah. If fugues do have a structure, it's this. That first part is the exposition. The middle is a more free development. And then there's some sort of recapitulating end section. And that's sort of this. Yeah. But in as much as Baroque music does that, right? It's yeah. not really like a Sonata Allegro type of form, even though that's what that sounds like you're talking about. No, that's completely a separate thing. Yeah. yeah. That's what's confusing. Yeah. We have to be clear about that because Baroque music, and if you just look at any Bach aria for example it does do exposition development recap it does but like not in the classical sense not no. in the complexity of what composers started doing with form and stretching form in the era after bach yeah but at the smaller level things like coming up to an ending where something the moment of the last chord should happen but you're diverted into a deceptive ending that is something shared between baroque and later classical era and that happens in the second half of bar 43 The whole thing could have ended right there. Yeah. It, it could end there, but instead, a very surprising chord happens and takes us on another strange journey for even more of the weird stretto. Until we finally wind down to the end and we hear the very last closing second half of the motive out of the tenor, right at the end, takes us to the last chord. In there is the best moment, I think. This occurs at measure 44 into 45. Did you see that there is a quadruple stretto here, Alex? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I didn't notice that it was happening in the... Alter there actually, because it's so it's so hidden when you listen yeah. to it because of the way everything's you can't actually hear it yeah because there's overlapping parts and what's on top and what's on bottom is changing every beat it's one of those things that's almost more theoretical than real in the soprano we begin on the a one beat later in the alto we begin on the f sharp and then we need to jump down an octave because we're running out of room from those descending intervals mm -hmm. there in the tenor we have d which is the original subject and then the bass has B. And these are all full answers. These are all full statements of the motive, I should say. Yeah. There's an answer at the top and then a different one, a different pitch entry and then a subject and then a different one. But they're all, they're all the same. They just start on different notes. Right. 
for Bach to write a motive that has these two parts that is interlockable one beat apart at the unison or at the third or at the fifth yeah. or all together multiple times in a row is really remarkable. Yeah, it's like the hydrogen atom of fugue Exactly. Subjects. It's the most connectable piece, puzzle piece of, of any of them. And for him to have created that, did he know that all these things, all these possibilities were already there? Is it all in his mind, probably sort of intuitively? I know that when I've written music that has some complexity contrapunctally, I will do something like I would have started with this measure, you know, like a proof of concept, like, oh, it can do this. My thing that I made can interlock in this way. Cool. Now I'll start. Now I'll start writing it. But then, you know, at some point in the piece, you get to that moment where you get to show it off a little. Yeah, you probably planned this kind of thing in advance. Otherwise, I'm not sure how you could have found that it happened. I guess there's a chance well, but that Bach, he could though, have just sort of figured it out as he went along. Yeah, I mean, it, for him, I don't think there even is a difference between composing something as he goes along or planning it. It's all like, it's all one thing, you know? He didn't really... He didn't sketch. He, yeah, he didn't sketch. He just, like, this would have all been possible in his brain, and, it would, and then he just writes it. And there's probably several other interesting interlocking... He, things he could have done with this because as we said it's so flexible it could be used in so many ways so he is serving the music by writing it in a certain way we shouldn't get too bogged down in the fact that this is like all mathematical locking patterns because when he's writing this he is going for like a platonic ideal of musical beauty probably right i mean i don't know about plato i don't know if bach was a plato guy or an aristotle guy or whatever but he knew about that stuff he knew about the philosophy he's thinking he's not just thinking mathematically right he's thinking philosophically he's trying to make something beautiful yeah like proportional ideally beautiful that's what a lot of the art of this age was about but the way that he did that was to use this form to its fullest potential it's very free we talked a long time ago about the cantata Der Herr denket an uns mm. opens with a movement that has in the middle of it a, a fugue but it's a very special kind it's a permutation fugue. Yeah. Meaning that the, all the four parts that are used in it are all permutated. That means that each part goes part one, part two, part three, part four in order, but they just overlap. And then when you're done with four, you go back to one. And that results in every single different combination. It also means that all of the counterpoint has to work in each part below or above of the other, which yeah. is not a given when you write counterpoint. That works too, and he managed to make that not boring and mathematical in that case by using the text helps, but also because it's it's singing, but also orchestration of adding and subtracting different instruments here and there. That's so smooth you wouldn't know it was a, you could barely know it was a anything other than imitation. First time I listened to it I didn't understand that it was a permutation fugue. Right. It's amazing. This is completely different. In a way this is the opposite, because this is the most flexible building block that's small, but he only uses it in short bursts. Otherwise he just sort of spins out this secondary the second half of the motive which he could do forever. And this form is free, and it has to be. That's why it's fugue. It's like there's no mathematical structure to fleeing or running, whether that's gracefully or chaotically. If you imagine fugue meaning the word to run away or to flee or to fly, no, that's not, even if it was something beautiful like a bird flying, it wouldn't be nope. a but, permutation. But fugue. you know what analogy I like? It's not flying, but it's exploding like a supernova. And using my 
picture that we had before of a hydrogen atom. If this is the hydrogen atom of the fugue subject, Bach puts his all of his skill into exploding that out into all these interesting colors, interesting other elements, right? Like how a supernova explodes and creates the heavier metals out of the simple material. Oh yeah, how like higher order things right. emerge. As higher it, order as things emerge from the explosion starting from the from something so simple. I think that's a fairly elegant analogy, actually. It just came to me of what's happening here. So maybe fugue, maybe we should rename it called Nova or something. That's got a great Latin root too. So I love it yeah. because it's like constantly renewing itself. Yeah. It's not... It's new. It's also not like in the scientific way, constantly unorganizing itself like entropy, which is also a real thing, but this is rather the opposite. It's kind of building as it goes. Yeah, when, when there's enough gravity, when, you're, when enough force is exerted on it, it makes something new. It suddenly makes something new. Astrophysicists, please don't go after us about the accuracy of this analogy. <laughs> yeah, please. Astrophysicists, please tell us how a fugue subject is not like a hydrogen atom. I'm okay with that <laughs> if you want to correct me. And now here is that quadruple stretto moment from the fugue in D major, Well-Tempered Clavier, book two. If this introduction to a musical moment has made you curious about what the performance looks like, you can find all the Well-Tempered Clavier book two as performed by Christine Schornsheim for the Netherlands Box Society. They come with companion videos too that are always interesting to watch. By the way, did you notice that every time the primary subject first half entered, she played it like bum ba ba ba. It was a specific articulation to it which is very nice it's yeah not just bump, 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 bump. it's a cool choice yeah. yeah these are great performances and i think it was a inspired idea to have the same performer do all of these but in different locations which is really nice alex what will we explore next week we'll hear some piano next week listener you might be thinking that doesn't make sense bach didn't write for piano except that he kind of did and that's a little hint at the angle that I'm going to take for next week's episode in which we talk about the musical offering, BWV 1079, specifically the richer car for three voices. Until next time, enjoy those moments. Enjoy those moments.